Have you ever heard of the books, The Whole Brain Child or No Drama Discipline? They are both so good. And today, the New York Times bestselling author, Tina Bryson, is my guest on the podcast. We're talking about her new book, The Power of Showing Up. And she means really showing up. Like, we got to put our phones down and be present. It's easy tips like that that Tina says will help our kids develop the grit and resilience that we so desperately want for them. Are you looking for real life tried and true tips and tricks to help with all the nitty gritty stuff of mom life? Well, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the Mom Force. All right, you guys, today you are in for a real treat. I am with my sister Erica here in the studio and calling in from Southern California. So, oh, you are so lucky because it's so <laughs> cold here in Utah. We have best selling author Dr. Tina Bryson. Hello, Tina. Hi, I'm so glad to join you today. Thank you for being here. Dr. Bryson is the author of several amazing parenting books. And today her new book, co-authored with Daniel Siegel, The Power of Showing Up, is out and available. And I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy. And I just read it while on a sister's trip this past week. And it is so good. Thank you. We are so proud of this book. And it's actually the book that we have been dying to write together from the very beginning because it's really the foundation for all of our our other books. And in a way, it's also kind of the conclusion to all of those books together. It's just, I can't wait to talk about it with y'all. Well, we have a Facebook group called The Mom Force. And so often people post this question, tell me your best, most favorite parenting book. What is the one book that I need to read to solve all of my parenting problems? <laughs> and I'm going to get in there and tell them you have got to get this book because I've got seven kids. And actually, my sister Erica has seven kids. Seven my oldest is 25. And you know, when he was young, and when I had all little kids, I read every book I could get my hands on. But then I felt like I got into a groove, like I kind of had this yeah. thing figured out. But my youngest, who is now 11, has literally broken all of the molds. (laughs) I am like starting from scratch. And as I read this book, I was finding the answers that I needed. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I think because what we write about in that book is based on decades and decades of science across many cultures. And it's actually about our fundamental drive and wiring as mammals. The idea of the power of showing up and being present can always be our North Star. And it's not just relevant to our relationship with our kids. It's really you know, the power of showing up is applicable in my relationship with my husband and my sister and my best friend and my own mother, really all of our relationships. And I had those same thoughts as I was reading it. Can you just tell us before we deep dive into this, tell us a little bit about your background and how this all came about? Well, you know, I'm a mom to three boys and I was a stay-at-home mom until my youngest, who's now 13, was five and started kindergarten. It was interesting. I I really wanted to be a stay-at-home. From the time I was little, that was something I was really, that was important to me. And the whole brain child came out the year that I turned 40 and my baby went to kindergarten. And so that's when things kind of blew up. It was like, I couldn't have timed it more perfectly. But from the very beginning, My eldest was 18 months. Uh, I had a master's in social work and a background in education, and I started a PhD program in social work. And I was assigned my very first semester to teach my classmates on the science of attachment. And at the time, I had an 18-month-old, and I was trying to figure out parenting. And as I dove into this science, it was remarkably powerful for me 
to understand my own history, to have a way to think about my parenting going forward. And as I began to study through this PhD program and I met Dan Siegel and I started learning about interpersonal neurobiology, I was like, I'm not going to be a professor. I'm not going to be a researcher. I've got to take the science and share it with people. That's kind of, it happened organically. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, so I've done a lot of therapy with kids and a lot of parenting consultations. I work in a school part-time as a child development specialist and school counselor. And about four years ago, my husband, who's an English professor, and I started a clinical practice here in Pasadena, California, where we live, that is interdisciplinary. So it's called the Center for Connection. And I'm so proud of it because as a therapist, I really hate the idea of diagnosing, particularly kids. And I found that so much of my training and how typical mental health practices work often have so much focus on extinguishing behavior or making diagnoses and then, you know, giving medications. And sometimes that's totally appropriate. But I felt like I really wanted to say we've got to peel the layers back to figure out what is going on for this kid. And then we'll be better at figuring out. So it's like if you have a cough and you just keep giving them cough medicine and you're just addressing the symptoms, you don't ever peel the layers back to figure out, is this allergy related or is this pneumonia? Because the response is going to be really different. So I created this interdisciplinary practice that is focused on mental health, occupational therapy, educational therapy, neuropsychological assessment, speech and language pathology, all in one roof. I have a question about the the attachment science. So how does that, what is the most important things parents need to understand about attachment science? And is that different than attachment parenting? Yes. And I get that question a lot, as you might imagine. Here's the thing. This is why I love this book and the science so much is because as you, I mean, you both have read a million parenting books and you've had a lot of guests on your show and you're in this space. So, you know, there are a lot of things that can come at us that basically are telling us like, you need to be doing all these things. And what I love about this science is it actually like parts the seas in a way, you know, like it basically says the research is really clear. Here's the punchline that the most important thing we can do, the best predictor for how well a kid turns out on everything we measure them on is that they are securely attached to at least one person. And fundamentally, secure attachment is a mammal thing. So if you're like a little lion cub out in the wild and you hear a scary noise or someone's a predator is starting to come closer to you, your attachment instinct is to run to an attachment figure, your, you know, your mama lion cub or your daddy lion cub or another adult that helps you feel connected and protected that allows you to have a better chance of survival. That's what our attachment system is about. The way we provide secure attachment to a child is to help them survive and feel safe. So when they're in distress, they come to us and we show up for them. And the way Dan and I like to talk about that is through the four S's. Fundamentally, it's really about helping kids feel safe, seen, soothed, and then over time, not perfectly, but predictably enough, having those experiences of feeling safe, seen, and soothed can lead to secure, that fourth S, which isn't really like I feel secure about myself, but rather that the brain has wired to securely know that if I have a need, someone's going to see it and respond to it and show up for me. Now, the way that this is different from attachment parenting is that attachment parenting is a style or it's an approach to parenting, similar to things like baby wise. For some reason, there's a lot of hyphenated words like baby wearing and 
baby bonding and co-sleeping co and <laughs> breastfeeding. And there's all these co, you know, all these hyphenated words, which is actually yes. kind of funny. But even if you don't do any of those things, you can have a child that is beautifully securely attached to you. And I think what happens sometimes with that approach is parents rigidly and extremely follow just one approach. And in my clinical experience, no matter what approach you're following, if you do it rigidly and extremely, it's going to be really problematic. So, you know, attachment parenting is an approach to parenting, but it's not actually at all the same as this body of science that has been over 50 years of careful conducted research on how the kinds of experiences we provide relationally for our children change how their brain and their minds become developed over time. So the same parent who works 60 hours a week can still have a secure child than the parent who wears their baby That's and a correct. baby Bjorn. That's if correct. Done correctly. Yep. That's correct. And I loved I loved how you said at least one parent, a secure attachment to yeah. at least one parent because there are a lot of single parents out there or parents with partners who are not in it the same way. Yeah. Um, but I have a question about kids who don't have any parents that provide this to them because yeah. my mother, I'm the oldest of 12, and she had 10 kids and adopted two. And my two adopted brothers were adopted when they were four and three, and they mm -hmm. came from a home where they did not have any security or safety. Yeah. And they really, really struggled. Yeah. I'm wondering in those first years, is that like the really crucial part or can damage be undone? That's such an important question. And that's another reason I love this research so much is that there are so many paths of hope that come from this research. So the first thing that you just mentioned there is that those early attachment experiences, yes, they're important. They matter. And having no attachment figures is actually very different from having attachment figures who provide insecure attachment. So sometimes when there's severe neglect where there's no one who is there for the child, that actually can produce much more severe outcomes than a child who has a caregiver there, but maybe who is angry or who is not attuned at all, or, you know, there's still someone there and that can make, you know, a big difference. But yes, those early attachment experiences, they are important, but they are not permanent. Our history is not our destiny. And so that's another reason I just love this so much is that because the way the brain is, is building these connections based on these relational repeated experiences, when we start having new kinds of experiences, when you have a parent who then begins to show up for you, who begins to help you feel safe, seen, and soothed, whether in the case that you talked about with adoption, where you have no one, it's going to be harder to, you know, make those changes in the, from those early years. Or if you have a, a situation where a child is in foster care and, and then they're adopted or whatever the circumstances are, what's important is that when experiences begin to change, the brain starts to assimilate those experiences and the wiring starts to pull in those repeated experiences to make new mental models about what to expect in relationships. So the early experiences are important, but they're not undoable. And in fact, 40% of the U.S. population 
did not have secure attachment with one of their parents. They had what would be called an insecure pattern of attachment. But that's the other big piece of hope here is that the best predictor for us being able to provide secure attachment to our own children is not whether or not we had it, which is so awesome because most of us had probably one parent who did provide secure attachment and one who didn't. The best predictor for us being able to provide it to our kids is that we've reflected on those relational experiences and made sense of them. The literature actually calls it a coherent narrative. So we're looking at those experiences and we're going, gosh, my parents didn't show up for me, or I didn't feel safe in my home. My dad was scary and unpredictable, or my mom was totally checked out. She was super depressed and she wasn't there for me, or whatever the circumstances are that we're not running from the past and denying it and ignoring that it happened, but rather we go, gosh, it didn't happen for me in the way that I needed. And that was really hard for me. And here's how it affected me. And here's how I find myself kind of having those tendencies as a parent. And here's how I want to change. So when we begin that process of reflection and making sense of it, we actually get what's called earned secure attachment. So our brains change and our wiring changes so that we can respond in better ways to our own kids. And you do such a great job in the book outlining exercises to help kind of deep dive into your personal history to understand what you experienced and then how you can change. And I love what you said. History is not destiny. Yeah. If we didn't have that secure attachment, we can change. It's so good, Tina. Okay. (laughs) The title of the book is The Power of Showing Up. And I have to say, when I first read the title, I was like, "Ah, I'm good. I show up. I make sure I'm home when the kids get home from school. (laughs) And if I go to, well, if not all, Many Most. of their games <laughs> Lots and of games performances, and but that's not what it's about, right? That's it's about not what it's about. Creating this secure attachment by being safe, seen, soothed, and secure. And so can you break down those really quickly and what, yeah. they, what those mean and help us understand what that is? Yeah. And just to clarify, when we're talking about the power of showing up, we mean really showing up in a moment. I guess a synonym for that would be being present. And so yes. we could be physically there. But we might be on our phones, probably and, on our phones. checked yeah, out, and completely <laughs> checked out. You know, so when we make mistakes, which we're going to do all the time, as I talk through these four S's, you'll think about all the times you have messed up as a parent. And the key is not not messing up. That's impossible. And actually, when we mess up as parents, it's actually really beneficial for our kids as long as we have this key, which is repair. It can create a teaching opportunity. Absolutely. Right? Say, Look, I messed up. I lost my temper. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm totally. So we can model repair. But also, I think one of the ways to think about this is if we were lovely and perfect with our children all the time, the world would be a really scary place. And the first time they had conflict in a relationship with a peer or, or a romantic partner, it would be intolerable to them. So one of the gifts we're giving them when we mess up and are human is that we kind of help them have the experience of, oh, no, there's conflict in this relationship. This doesn't feel good. And this is feels awful. And we work through it. And it's okay. And maybe we're even closer. So it actually widens their window of tolerance for having conflict in relationships. So here's the four S's. Safe. Now, when people first hear about safe, they're like, yeah, of course, I know I need to put my kid in a car seat and I need to you know, keep them safe. But we're actually challenging parents to go a little bit deeper here. So in the attachment research, one of the most difficult things to talk about and has the biggest negative impacts is something called disorganized attachment. And if you think about this, if you have a biological drive that says, hey, when you're in danger, you run to your caregiver to keep you safe. But what if your caregiver is the source of your terror? 
or the source of your fear or the source of your pain, then you also have a biological circuit that says, get the heck away from what is dangerous. So it actually creates disorganization in the brain. Obviously, that would be the case for kids who deal with abuse. And obviously, abuse and neglect is unfortunately, way more common than most people realize. But if we think about more common everyday versions of that, that all of us could have in our home, like let's say you and your co-parent, your significant other, are having a heated argument. And maybe it escalates to where, you know, there's screaming and yelling. That can be really frightening for children, particularly if they're young. In fact, there's a study that shows that even when babies are sleeping, if their parents are arguing in the background, even though they're unconscious, they're asleep, their stress levels are up, their cortisol levels go up. So um, it can be really stressful for our kids when we have conflict. You know, as long as we can stay engaged in like more respectful ways, it's not necessarily bad to do that in front of our kids. Yeah, I I always think it's good to show that like we don't always get along all the time and and to model how we resolve disagreements in a respectful way. Yeah. And even when you're frustrated with each other to say that hurt my feelings or I didn't like that. And to do that in a respectful way, that can be really helpful. But the other things we can do besides that is, you know, we all lose our temper and we might yell at our kids. And especially when they're young, that can be frightening. And so we must think about, we always want to be the safe haven for our child and not the source of fear. And so that's one of the things we're talking about in this idea of safe is being the safe harbor and that when your child feels afraid that you are there to help them say, I've got you, you're safe. And by the way, one of the ways we can help our kids feel safe is by having limits and boundaries and being predictable on that. So this is not a permissive approach at all. This is not about just, you know, you're just talking with your kids about their feelings and you're attuning to them about their feelings about not wanting to put their shoes on and you're sitting for 10 minutes to have a reflective conversation about that. That's not what we're talking about here. So when we say it's time to get shoes on and I know you're so disappointed about having to stop what you're doing and put your shoes on and we're get, it's time to go. And you may have to pick up your child and pick up the shoes you're having limits and you're having boundaries, but you're also tuning into their emotional experience, which is what leads us to that second one of seen. Seen is about being known and feeling felt. So when you're seen, you have this experience that what's happening inside of you, inside your internal landscape, your feelings and thoughts and experiences, and the way your parent responds to you are a match. So if my kid's like, I'm really worried about whatever it is, and I say, you don't need to worry about that. Stop worrying. You need to toughen up. I've said that. I have too. Did you hear how easily that came out of my mouth? (laughs) Yeah. Here's what happens though. And again, that's not the end of the world. We can make a repair on that or, you know, the next time we do it better and that's fine too. But what happens in that moment for our child is, okay, they don't get what I'm really feeling and they're not going to help me because they think I'm being ridiculous. So I'm on my own with this fear. So being seen instead, if we're like, oh, that worries you, you know, you don't, you feel uncomfortable going back to sleep knowing that there's a spider that you saw on your floor. I wouldn't like sleeping in a room with a spider either. How should we problem solve this? You know, whatever. So then you may look for the spider or you may say, why don't you come in my room and, you know, sleep on the floor or sleep in your brother's room or whatever it is. So being seen is about being known. Well, your example of the spider in the kid's bedroom, I can totally see myself saying, 
there's no spider. You're fine. Just yeah. go to bed. Go to sleep. And then that escalating. And there's no way that child's going to go to sleep because now they're upset that they're not seen and I don't understand them. But in my brain, in the way that I was raised, if you you know go back on your rule that you have to sleep in your bed and I let them come sleep in my bed, that I'm setting up a pattern of no boundaries. You know, right. Because I'm, I am big on boundaries. And I, and I really appreciate how you talk about that in the book. But in that example – are you supposed to be fluid with your boundaries based on what you see as you're trying to see the experience your child is having? Well, I think it depends. I think it's anytime we're super rigid, it can make us move to missing opportunities to attune. So if we in that moment say there's no spider in your room and the kid is like, I saw the spider. What's happening in that moment, if we kind of slow it down, is the child either says, OK, either I can't trust my mom because she's telling me something I know not to be true, or I can't trust myself. What happens is kids typically start not trusting themselves. So in that moment, you know, to say there's no spider, and I've done it, I've done it, I've done it, <laughs> because I want to go the heck back to sleep, right? Right. <laughs> is to say, okay, well, there's actually spiders everywhere in the house. I know that's kind of scary to think about. Maybe that's not the right thing to say, given your particular <laughs> child. Maybe like, Don't start telling him how many sw- spiders you swallow in your <laughs> lifetime or anything like that. But to just say, let's do a quick look, and if we can't find it, then let's find another place to sleep tonight. And then tomorrow we'll do a really thorough vacuuming and checking or something like that. I think it's fine to make exceptions because I think when one of the things that happens is we do a lot of fear-based parenting. You know, I think what happens is you're like, if I let him come into bed with me this one night, then and he'll sleep in here forever and he's never going to come out of my bed and then he's going to depend on me forever. And eventually in your mind, he's living in a van down by the river and has no <laughs> friends, you know? So we can let fear totally take us over. But I think we can say, so then the next night, if he's like, I really like sleeping in your bed, can I sleep in your bed? And you're like, no, we're, that was just an unusual, you know, thing. And then maybe he starts saying, well, I think there's more spiders in my room. Then you, you address that. You can address it along the way. And it's even fine to change our minds. I know I've I've set down a boundary that I actually find later I can't enforce. It's permissive if our kid starts whining and fussing and we say, okay, fine, go ahead. You can do it. That's very different from saying, you know what? I've thought about this. I've listened to what you had to say and I'm changing my mind about this. You are still in a position of authority and holding the boundaries, but you're also modeling that you're not going to just rigidly follow things when you get new information, you know? So I think we can allow ourselves to not rigidly hold the boundary every single time. Well, me and my adult mind, I understand how I feel when I feel like I've been dismissed, that my feelings have been dismissed and aren't being heard by other people. So I can just imagine, and something that I've tried to be real conscious with my kids, especially when they get angry, is, okay, you're angry. It's okay to feel anger. You just can't be mean. Don't be rude to me. Don't be be disrespectful. But you can feel the feelings you have. So I can understand me me feeling snappy when someone's like, oh, dismisses whatever it is I'm feeling, or you shouldn't be annoyed at that person. So putting that into a child's brain, I can understand how that could be difficult. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of times parents don't see that being high on being emotionally responsive and giving empathy and being connected to their internal experience and holding a boundary. But they're so important. And the research demonstrates that being high on limit setting and boundary setting and expectations and high on that emotional responsiveness leads to the best results. So just a practical example, you know, one time my little five-year-old, he had a meltdown about getting into the tub. And then when it was time to get out, he had a meltdown about getting out. And, you know, the first thing I have to do in the moment is make sure I am regulated inside myself, that I am calm so that I can show up in the moment and not escalate things and not 
create more chaos. So the first thing I do is pause and make sure I'm ready. And then I say to him, it's time to get out. You can either get out yourself or I will help you out. And he doesn't get out. And as I'm lifting him out of the tub, he's screaming and yelling and saying all kinds of disrespectful things. And it's so funny. We say like, you can't talk to me like that, which is kind of a dumb thing to say because they can. They just did. They absolutely can if they want. But in that moment, he's screaming and yelling and I'm lifting him out of the tub. And I'm saying, I know you're so mad about getting out of the tub. You really wanted to stay in. I know it's so hard. And I'm bringing all this empathy as I'm lifting him out of the tub. So I'm enforcing the limit. I'm saying no to the behavior of staying in the tub, but I'm saying, yes, it's okay to feel mad. It's okay to feel those feelings and you can share them with me and I can handle it because sometimes we give our kids the message. Like if you're going to be upset, go to your room or if you're going to cry, I don't want to hear it. Or we say, stop crying. The problem with all of that messaging that I just said is that when we say that repeatedly and we dismiss the child's experience, they are internalizing that. And so basically we're saying, I only want to be in a relationship with you when you have it together. And actually the message we want to give them is at your worst, when you are falling apart, I have got you. I can handle it. I'm here. And especially that's important as they move into adolescence because developmentally, as you all know, they start pulling away. And, and if we've repeatedly told them, I don't want to hear about it, we're going to get even less out of them. We're literally not going to hear about it. We really are not going to hear, literally. This leads us into the next point, the soothing. Soothed, and, yes. and I love what you wrote in the book that often you have people that say, well, the world is a tough place and it's my job to toughen them up, you know, and this contrast between soothing and coddling. I know that I fall in that category. I feel like if I give in too much or it's just going to make them soft. <laughs> is yeah. that just a result of how I was raised? Well, I think, again, that takes us back to that kind of fear-based parenting. You know, if we bring empathy and connection and and we listen and we do all that kind of more connected type of parenting, then it's going to lead to kids who are spoiled and fragile. First of all, the literature, and I did a dissertation on this, is very clear that It is impossible to spoil kids by giving them too much affection, attention. Attention is actually a need and it's often thought of as a manipulative behavior. But when we say she's just trying to get attention, that would be the same thing as saying she's just trying to get food and water. It's actually a need. And so because it's a need, if your parent ignores it, they actually have to amplify their behavior to get that need met. So it's impossible to spoil kids by doing too much of that. Where kids get spoiled the literature is very clear. And that is that we do not have limits, rules, and boundaries. So where spoiling comes in is when kids don't get practice not having things go their way. And really, that's what we're talking about in the book is we help calm our children's nervous systems down. So when they're having a tantrum or they're in distress, basically like, I'm right here with you and I'm going to help you. That's really what soothing is. And, And that often works better with more nonverbal kinds of things, but also using empathy in our voices. But I I do see sometimes that parents take that and they stay in that moment for so long, it becomes almost even indulgent. So we don't have to have a 15 minute wallowing in the emotional chaos. I think it's fine to say you were feeling really mad. You got so frustrated. Is that right? That's really hard. Why don't we go outside and take some deep breaths? And so it's not about distracting kids from their emotions. It's really about having an experience where you reflect back or join with your child in what their emotional experience is, help them make sense of it, help them language it. Maybe even later say, what could you do when you're mad that wouldn't hurt your brother? All of that's good, but we don't have to wallow in it. So the last thing I'll say about this is that 
if you want your kid to be tough and resilient and have grit and be able to handle adversity, you yes, better help them, Yeah, you better soothe the crap out of them and help them feel safe, seen, and soothed. Because what happens is when our kids are falling apart and we help them in that moment, it doesn't make them more reliant on us. What it does is it gives their brain a rep. So think about like the brain lifting a muscle. It gives the brain a rep or a practice in going from a dysregulated, chaotic, acting out state back to being in control and regulated and making good decisions and being thoughtful. So when we co-regulate and get them from dysregulated states back into regulated states, their brain gets practice doing that so that they can do it for themselves. And so that's that thing that's so exciting about the four S's is when we help them, again, not perfectly, the research says we can mess up all the time, but repeatedly and predictably enough, we help them feel safe, seen, and soothed. So when we do that, we're actually helping them build the neural structures that allow them to be tough and have grit and to not be fragile. It's the opposite of that. Well, I've always thought that while my kids are in my home, and especially I have three teenagers right now and two preteens, that having them fail, being home, that's a safe place for them to fail, to learn how to fail. Yes. Because they're home with me and my husband and I can help them. I've seen I've seen it happen with some of their friends, some peers that don't ever have to fail and then they show up at college and difficulty comes and they they don't have they don't have a way to they don't have a way to cope when you guys think about it you know when you're upset and you're having a hard time that's what what you need is someone to help you feel safe seen and soothed and what it does is it makes us more resilient it makes us less fragile and and I love what you said there about kids who don't have opportunities to fail some of the time and more and more in this current day of parenting it's really that the parents can't tolerate the child's failure. And mm-hmm. so one of my favorite things to say is that if you want your kid to be resilient, the way you get re- the way they get resilient is by practicing dealing with difficult things with enough support. So the thing that makes the difference between a toxic stress, a toxic adversity and a tolerable adversity is whether or not you have someone who shows up for you and and who who's got your back. You know, something really hard has happened is someone going to see my needs and and respond to me and show up for me. So when we let our kids feel disappointment or frustration or anger, when that we allow those our kids to experience those feelings and experiences, and we show up and say, I know that's so hard. That felt really bad to be left out. Or you're so disappointed you don't get to stay up with the older kids. That's really hard. I know you don't want to miss out. We let them feel the disappointment instead of saying, okay, fine, you can go back downstairs and be with the kids. That is a rep. It's practice for the brain to sit in uncomfortable emotions and know that they're okay. And, yes. and we can sit in it with them. Our job isn't to fix and protect them from feeling anything. But when our kids do hit the bumps to say, I'm here with you. This is hard. I'm going to walk with you through it. I'm not going to do it for you. I'm not going to prevent you from having to go over the bumps, but I'm here if you need someone to listen to you. So once they have felt safe and then seen and soothed, then they have the opportunity to feel the security where right. they can then flourish in and what they're doing. Is that the next step? Yeah. So security, like I said, is really about the brain creating an expectation. The brain's an association machine. So secure attachment is built from these repeated experiences of the first three S's. And then secure attachment, that fourth S, security, is built when we've had enough experiences where our brain assumes that if I have a need, someone will see it 
and respond to me in a way that will help me feel good and okay in the world. So what's cool about it is that when that wiring takes place, then kids start expecting that from all of their relationships. And eventually that middle prefrontal cortex wires so that when they leave, the brain gets wired to give them the capacity to do those four S's for themselves so that they can help themselves feel safe, seen, and soothed and provide that sort of inner well of resources. So again, a part of resilience building is that that security comes from having these repeated, not perfect experiences where the brain wires to expect it from others and to do it for themselves. Well, that has got to be the ultimate parenting win. Yeah, to that was know my, your child can do those things for yeah. themselves. That was yeah. my favorite part of the book because of my seven kids, four kids are already out of the house. And I feel like that that's my job. My job is not to be their best friend. My job right. is to prepare them to go out into the world and be successful on their own. And yeah. Thank you. Thank you for doing <laughs> the work and the study and the research and putting such a wonderful book together. And thank you for being here and sharing your, your advice for us. I actually have lots of other scenarios I would love to get your take on, but we're out of time. But I have to say to all of our listeners and all of you who are asking, what are the best parenting books? Check out Dr. Tina Bryson. Your other book, Whole Brain Child, my sister Leah yeah. raves about that one. And she says, I've got to read Yes Brain for my son. She's like, that will unlock a lot of oh, mystery for him. Thank you. Where, where can people find more about you? They can find me at tinabryson.com, and that's B-R-Y-S-O-N. Can I just leave your listeners with one final thought, though? Yes. I just feel like we'll have one more thing burning in my soul, which is to say, when we think about what do we do in the moment, you know, when we have kids, like, it's hard sometimes. I don't know what to do or what to say or how to handle it. And I can always say, okay, helping my kid feel safe, seen, and soothed, that's always going to be the right answer. That will always build connection and give them what they need in the moment. And so that's simple. But it's hard to do. And the the truth is that in order to do that hard work of parenting, to be the kind of parent we want to be, we need people in our own lives that help us feel safe, seen, and soothed. We need people who show up for us and who are present to us. So I think that's the final message I want to leave your listeners with is just make sure you're getting that as a parent too, so that you have the capacity to be able to do it for your kids, to take care of yourself as well. Yes, that's so important. What a good reminder. Tina, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and let us know what you think. Also, check out the show notes for links to the things we talked about. And you can find a special chapbook's discount code. All right. See you next week.